Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It easy podcast live on the believe podcast network even though it isn't actually live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is thursday august 25th i hope you are having a fantabulous day so far thanks to everyone who's continued to support the podcast with those five star reviews and downloads and follows we can see it and we're moving closer and closer towards a financially beneficial relationship with the Believe Podcast Network. We're establishing that download count, and uh, they'll help us find some partners here to help pursue this passion a little bit further and maybe turn it into a part-time job that makes money instead of a part-time job that I just do for free because I love doing this so freaking much. Unofficial episode 691 as well on the Take It Easy podcast. We've got a fun show today, Uh, fun for me because I get to roast Broncos fans and Drew Locke fans a bit, who can, they can be a little obnoxious at times, so just putting that out there to the world and to Broncos fans and Drew Locke fans, because here is my guide, shall we say, this is Kyle's guide and comical sports memes guide to starting beef with NFL teams, because if you start beef with the teams that are already tanking, those are the teams that know to make fun of themselves. Like the Jaguars and the Jets, they just kind of accept, you know, we're tanking for Trevor, we're tanking for Justin Fields, we're tanking for Zach Wilson, you know. The teams that stink, they know how to make fun of themselves, or else it's going to be a really depressing season. If you're the fan of a team that has absolutely no hope, and your hope is in draft picks. And there's usually about six of those every year, but... Sometimes teams spend multiple years down there. So those teams kind of recognize that they're losers. You don't want to start beef with those teams because then you look like an asshole. And two, it's not fun because they're willing to laugh at themselves a bit. When your team is laughably bad, you're willing to laugh a bit because otherwise it's just depressing. And you don't want to make fun of someone who's depressed. The key is to have teams that have just enough expectation that their fan bases get a little bit loud and a little bit vocal and a little bit arrogant. And you know that from past history that they are a perpetually mediocre franchise. And who are the teams that have done this for me for the past four years of my life? It is the Bears, it is the Giants, and to a lesser extent, it is the Denver Broncos. So those are the teams that are the best to make fun of because their fan bases have irrational expectations for franchises that have been perpetually mediocre for the past six years in the case of the Broncos, nine years in the case of the Giants, and 15 years in the case of the the Chicago Bears. So we will laugh at the Broncos a little bit later on in the podcast, but first... 
let's talk about the Jacksonville Jaguars because the Jaguars have been a ridiculously interesting team throughout the season so far. In fact, I've heard people say they're one of the five most interesting teams in the NFL this year. I mean, year over year, they go from just being like total laughingstocks, and, and they had planned for this coming into the season. Last year, the Jaguars were planning to be terrible. And by the way, I was going back through some old archived podcasts. And uh, in June of 2020, during the heart of the pandemic, we did a podcast where when I was listening to a random snippet of it, I did mention the plausibility of the Jaguars trying to tank for Trevor Lawrence. Just like to throw that out there, June of 2020, we were talking about the Jaguars tanking for Trevor Lawrence along with Washington. So it was already in the realm of possibility. And we knew the Jaguars were going to be bad. They were designed to be bad. It's why they wanted Gardner Minshew to be the starter last year. And when they won that first game of the season, why we were all baffled at the Jaguars being 1-0. and zero. Quick reminder, they did not win another game the rest of the season. They finished 1-15 after winning in Week 1. The last team to do that, 2003, the Carolina Panthers. When the Panthers started 1-0, lost 15 in a row, walked away with future first ballot Hall of Famer Julius Peppas as a result of that. And three years later, they were in the Super Bowl. But the Jaguars may not be that good or that close to turning things around, but the Jaguars still are an interesting team. They obviously get Trevor Lawrence. Urban Meyer makes the the transition, which regardless of what you think about Urban Meyer, and there's some gross stuff in there and going back to Florida, but also the way he went out in Ohio State with possibilities of cover-up and hiding that uh, retirement for medical reasons around potentially them asking him to leave so Ryan Day could become the coach. There's there's some gross stuff down there with the Urban Meyer situation, but at the very least, it's interesting. And so far, they've delivered on some of those moments with Chris Doyle being hired, which is just blatant, blatant miscalculation on Urban Meyer's part, to training camp battles with Gardner Minshew and him do, giving fun quotes and bringing in the AEW component because the owners of AEW are the son and another person. I don't know who it is, but basically the, the front face of AEW wrestling is the son of the Jaguars owner and Jaguars money built this wrestling league that's competing with the WWE and slowly has a bit of a cult following now. And the Jaguars have done all kinds of interesting things so far this season which is good because we'll stop caring about them around mid-November when they inevitably suck and we can stop caring about the Jaguars. But this is where things get a bit interesting for the Jaguars is Travis Etienne. Now, did it take three and a half minutes to get the long way to Travis Etienne? Absolutely. But it's been really interesting over the past two days because Travis Etienne is now out for the season. And I didn't even see the play that he got hurt on, but... It was in the second preseason game on Monday. He caught a pass, and then one was, I think, overthrown or something. And then he was gone after that, and he was on crutches, and they were saying that they would need further evaluations, but it didn't seem too serious. And then, boom, Lisfranc injury, which is basically the two plates of the foot are off-center. Lisfranc injury, season over for Travis Etienne before it even starts. And this came after, despite the fact that Walter Mitchell, our buddy from Revenge of the Birds, and the Red Rain podcast, which we recorded yesterday, and you can check out over on Revenge of the Birds on SB Nation, even though Walter loved Travis Etienne and really wanted him on the Cardinals, 
it was a really, really strange pick at the time. First of all, because, and noted, this is the previous regime of um, Doug Marone. Trent Balky is still there. I found out Trent Balky was working with the Jaguars, but this was obviously the Doug Marone regime, and Urban Meyer's the shot caller with the Jaguars now, so obviously he's making the calls here, and goes against first cutting Leonard Fournette last year before training camp and then having James Robinson be the third leading rusher in the NFL, they drafted a running back in the first round, which is already a risky proposition. But one of the things we talked about leading up to the draft is that ETN was one of those guys you could kind of make the case for drafting in the first round. Najee Harris, definitely home run hit. But with ETN, you could make the case for first and second round. And ETN also, for context, he played his junior year at Clemson and they lost the championship game to LSU. And instead of going to the draft, ended up going back for his senior season, which was always a risky proposition because he had first round grades and running backs don't age very well. I mean, we just saw Sony Michelle traded yesterday to the New England Patriots or from the New England Patriots to the Rams. And I made the joke on Instagram that like as a rookie, he scored like every touchdown in a Super Bowl run for the Patriots. Like six of seven touchdowns in the playoffs were scored by Sony Michelle. And then he just didn't produce anything else after that. And people were bringing up the fact that he was drafted before Nick Chubb, but I'm even scared of Nick Chubb going forward because of how quickly the running back position ages. And any running back that misses a full season is already super concerning. Which is compounded when you realize that Travis Etienne is going to be 23 when he plays his first snap, presumably, for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so there's so much that goes wrong here and so many fingers that can be pointed, but ultimately, the Travis Etienne story makes me really, really want to place this emphasis to everyone. Let's not play the result on this Travis Etienne injury. And this works in a number of ways. We should not be playing the result just because he got hurt. It doesn't mean that Urban Meyer's playing guys too hard or too long in the preseason. It's a freak injury. It's going to happen. It happened to um, Carl Lawson in practice the other day for the Jets. It happened to happen on a nationally televised game that's going to give Urban Meyer a lot of scrutiny based on things that are well-deserved in Urban Meyer's past. He deserves a certain level of scrutiny because Urban Meyer has some icky stuff in his past, and even in Jacksonville, like hiring Chris Doyle was a really tone-deaf move for Urban Meyer. Um, And that's obviously in this new place, which I'm not under the presumption that a 58-year-old man who has had the level of success Urban Meyer has had at every level of coaching is all of a sudden going to magically change the way that he that his philosophy goes but maybe he doesn't have to be the the mercenary dictator as much now that he's not in the college level and then we have to question whether or not that's what made urban meyer successful or not it's not necessarily his schemes because urban meyer is not a play calling coach it's more so him in the leadership role and so those are unquestionable things in urban meyer's past but we shouldn't play the result and say because urban meyer is too much of a dictator coach and too much of a college type that travis Etienne got hurt we should not play the result that way we also should not reaffirm the fact that travis Etienne was the wrong pick for the jacksonville jaguars 
yes, that might look bad. We look back in hindsight and that might end up being the case that Travis Etienne was a really bad pick for Jacksonville, but we can't just go in guns blazing saying that off the bat from this injury. Now, this is a, a presumably something that wasn't in his medical history. If it was, then we can come back to the table and play Monday morning quarterback, but we shouldn't be playing the result that immediately this was the wrong pick for the Jaguars. Now, in hindsight, injuries might derail it, but that doesn't mean ETN wasn't the prospect they thought he was coming into the draft. And it also doesn't mean that James Robinson is now going to go totally berserk in Jacksonville. He was a product of an offense that was groomed around running the football last year and the years before with Leonard Fournette, which is the reason why they spent the fourth overall pick on Leonard Fournette back in 2017, I want to say, was Leonard Fournette. 2016 or 2017, I can't remember which year was Leonard Fournette, but they spent those picks that year to make sure, or they spent that pick because of how they wanted to play offense and run the football, and Leonard Fournette was one of the most productive running backs when he was healthy and in his physical peak. Now, there are questions about Leonard Fournette's work ethic that we're not going to get into, but you can read some good articles about it over on ESPN. So it doesn't mean James Robinson is now just going to go absolutely berserk. It's a different offense and a different quarterback and a different court. Well, different offense means different offensive coordinator, but it is in play. But let's not take it as an overreaction of like, oh, now James Robinson's going to get all the touches that they presumably had. Yes, he was. But the original game plan was probably going to totally exclude James Robinson because James Robinson was an undrafted running back and Travis Etienne was a first-round pick. The talent level was probably going to give that to Etienne over James Robinson. Because, yes, James Robinson was the third-leading rusher in the NFL last year, but the Jaguars were also the worst team in the NFL last year. Sometimes that happens with top running backs. It's just they get the touches and the opportunities. And finally in playing the result or trying to not play the result. This doesn't mean that Travis Etienne was wrong for staying an extra year in college and going to the NFL after the 2020 season instead of 2019. Now, financially, we don't know what the difference would have been because we don't know where Travis Etienne would have been drafted had he gone into the 2020 draft. Financially, I think that's a victory for... Whoever didn't pick him, but again, that's just the unfortunate part of a freak accident. And Travis Etienne is going to maybe still be a productive running back or be a first round pick. Because remember, he was drafted similarly to where Josh Jacobs was. And Josh Jacobs, we don't think of Josh Jacobs as a wow type of pick, and he's been a Pro Bowl running back in the past. So obviously, the expectations are set high on Travis Etienne. And the money is somewhat guaranteed, and that first contract is obviously going to set ETN up well, and he's one of those endorsement type of guys where we don't know what Clemson is doing behind the scenes, but if you know the structure of college football, ETN might have been one of the people collecting some of those checks in the bayou. Um, we don't know exactly. It's a little reckless speculation, but it's just the, it's the nature of college football. I'm not trying to say it like salaciously. Like, it's just the nature of college football that... The money was still pretty secure being the star running back at Clemson and the ACC's all-time leading rusher, and he got that first-round money from the Jaguars, about $3 million of it guaranteed. So 
This doesn't verify that, you know, they should always go to school after, or they should always leave to the NFL, even though 80% of the time, and this is, again, based on no statistics, but a, a majority of the time, I won't put an exact number on it, but a majority of the time, which could be anywhere from like 55% to 95%, I understand I'm giving myself a wide gulf here, but a majority of the time, you should secure the money when the opportunity is there, especially when it comes to NFL dollars. And college football math is changing because of name, image, and likeness and creating a new economy out of endorsements. But still, either way, you should probably take the money when the opportunity is there because all of a sudden there's n there's not a lot of evidence to historically suggest that all of a sudden you're going to get significantly more money by not going to the NFL more often when you stay in college, you end up getting less money coming out of the draft with a few exceptions or sometimes losing your money altogether because you regress and you're a year and a half older and all of a sudden teams are looking up and saying, eh, we're not quite in this uh, in love with this as much as we were. This happened to Jacob Eason. It happened to Jake Fromm is that Jake Fromm had people fooled after his junior year came back and then ended up being like a sixth-round pick because people realized he was not a first-round grade like people had initially assumed coming out of Georgia. And so usually people go down because they're a year older, they've got a year worn on the body. If math suggested that staying longer in college or staying the extra year because college you have to play three years of college football before getting to the NFL, staying the extra year if it proved that it did lead to better financial opportunity, more people would do it. But in this case, there's not a lot of historical precedent, only few exceptions that go on to prove the rule. So majority of the time, you probably should leave. You should leave instead of staying in the unpaid labor system for an extra year because you're losing value on what you could potentially be earning. Now, if you thought there was financial benefits on the back end, then, again, changes the math, but only a few exceptions. Maybe ETN was the exception. We never got to figure out where he would have been drafted in 2020. But still, it doesn't mean that ETN was wrong for choosing it because it, it means that we don't know if ETN was wrong for choosing it because we don't know what he would have been in 2020. And either way, ETN probably gets to, to in the end, maybe have a little bit more joy at Clemson, things that outside of finances that might actually make a difference. But again, we don't have the information to Monday morning quarterback it and say that any of these things are truths because of ETN's injury. And again, it's not looking great for Jacksonville, but they're still super interesting going forward. And unfortunately for them, we're just going to stop caring about you once you start two and six and uh, you're battling the Houston Texans to avoid last place in that division and getting like the number seven pick in the draft like you've been doing for the past few seasons until last year where you just decided to be all-time bad and get a once-in-a-generation talent as your reward for it. So thanks for making things interesting, Jacksonville, and I'm not ready to totally just crush you for losing your first-round pick running back. So we teased this a little bit earlier here today, but it would appear that Drew Locke's 
breakout season, and I put breakout season in massive air quotes uh, and doing it absolutely sarcastically, it appears said breakout season is over before it even got started. And the Broncos announced yesterday that Teddy Bridgewater, a.k.a. Bridgewatering, a.k.a. Teddy Two Gloves, will be the week one starter for the Denver Broncos. And while Drew Locke may end up playing at some point during the season, the fact that Denver didn't hand him the keys altogether signifies that Drew Locke is no longer viewed as their starting quarterback, which means the Drew Locke era is officially over. Maybe for good. And this weird three-year run of is-he-good-is-he-not-good quarterback system for the Broncos is a perfect symbol for this franchise's post-Super Bowl 50 blues, which basically sets up the Broncos as a perpetually mediocre franchise that tried to build an NFL team without a consistent plan. For 24 months now, and really it's up to 28 because this is like everything they've done after drafting Drew Locke, I've struggled to really figure out what the Denver Broncos wanted to do. I mean, back in 2016, the Broncos, for context here, the Broncos were 100% ready to give Brock Osweiler a top five contract in the NFL, locking themselves into a new QB to transition the franchise from 2013 MVP Peyton Manning, and they were coming off of a Super Bowl in 2015 slash February of 2016 because it's always difficult, but it was the 2015 season that the Broncos won the Super Bowl. And so what I wanted to do here today in the aftermath of Drew Locke not getting the starting job for the Broncos of Teddy Bridgewater being the 12th different quarterback who is going to get a start for the Denver Broncos over the last five seasons and the fact that Teddy Bridgewater might be the best of the Broncos quarterbacks over the last five now going on six seasons. I wanted to talk about how the Broncos became a perpetually mediocre franchise and I talked about this a little bit earlier in the show but before we get to the context let's revisit it. The Broncos have never been terrible enough to make it not fun to laugh at them. The Broncos have always had expectations of wanting to win. John Elway had expectations of wanting to win immediately after building one of the best defenses in the NFL and at the time bringing in one of the best free agent signings in the history of the NFL. I think one could argue the best free agent signing in the history of the NFL. The other contenders are... Deion Sanders and Tom Brady, but regardless, one of the best free agent signings in the history of the NFL brought Peyton Manning to Denver, and this is now six years of perpetual mediocrity that ultimately got John Elway fired, and Broncos fans were well and alive at the time, and they kind of fell to their impending doom shall we say because now Broncos fans you get to just be perpetually mediocre and we get to laugh at you for six years because you guys have been terrible ever since your Super Bowl and you'll continue to be terrible for the next four to five years so let's go back through what happened to the Denver Broncos and some context and ultimately why they failed Drew Locke over and over and why I just haven't been able to figure out what they wanted to do, or what the plan was in Denver. 
and I mentioned this a second ago, so they were willing to give Brock Osweiler, following the Super Bowl, a top-five quarterback contract. In March of 2016, Osweiler then took the same $72 million contract to join the Houston Texans instead of joining the Denver Broncos. And Brock Osweiler is the first symptom of a long and treacherous journey for the Denver Broncos into perpetual mediocrity. Because while Brock Osweiler had shown some promise, it was clear at the time that Osweiler was viewed as the Broncos' franchise quarterback, and I put franchise quarterback in air quotes, simply because Brock Osweiler was on the roster. Osweiler was the fifth quarterback taken in the 2012 NFL Draft behind Andrew Luck, Robert Griffin III, Ryan Tannehill, and Brandon, the weed man, Whedon. They were all first-round picks. He was taken with, like, pick 57 or something like that. Um, But it was uh, coming off of a season where, in 2011, the Broncos made the playoffs and won a playoff game against the Steelers with literally the worst quarterback room in the NFL. You could make an argument for the worst quarterback room of the 21st century. They had... Kyle Orton start the season, and he was benched for Tim Tebow, who both would never start again after they completed that season. Kyle Orton and Tim Tebow, neither would ever start another football game after that 2011 season with the Denver Broncos. Those two combined had a 49% completion rate, 20 touchdowns, and 13 interceptions across 16 games that year. If you want to know a reference point in the modern NFL, Drew Locke, among qualified starters, there's about 35 qualified starters last year, Drew Locke had the worst completion percentage in the NFL at 57%. Individually, both Orton and Tebow were worse than the worst completion percentage quarterback in the NFL, while also throwing double-digit interceptions between the two of them, which, by the way, Drew Locke threw 15 interceptions last year, so he wasn't that far behind. But Orton and Tebow were both worse than the worst quarterback in the NFL last year by volume. And so the Broncos started from scratch in their quarterback room after that horrendous season. And it was the first year of John Fox's Broncos tenure, so he wanted to not go through what Josh McDaniels did with Tebow and Kyle Orton. And so I started out with zero quarterbacks on the roster in 2016, or I'm sorry, 2012, before signing Peyton Manning and drafting Osweiler in the second round. Before there was Jimmy Garoppolo, who would get drafted two years later and be the famous guy preparing to take the reins from Tom Brady. Before Jimmy G, there was Brock Osweiler, who the Broncos basically took the same approach to figuring out how they were going to build their future franchise quarterbacks. And the problem between Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Osweiler was just a simple one, is that they were third-round grades. They were third-round prospects. Brock Osweiler and Jimmy Garoppolo's simply highest possible ceiling was being a low-end starter in the NFL. There wasn't really a scenario where Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Osweiler could end up being top-end starters in the NFL, but also 
those two could also be good enough to win a Super Bowl under the best of circumstances. And so, I mean, Nick Foles was good enough too, so it's not a high bar to hit. But four years later, we go from 2012 to 2014, you have MVP seasons from Peyton Manning, one of the best defenses in the NFL, four straight division titles and two Super Bowl appearances. Peyton Manning is washed and retired, and Osweiler left to play in Houston. And so once again, the Denver Broncos had zero QBs on the roster, but they'd had tremendous success in 2012 in filling their quarterback room. So they took literally the exact same approach to solving their QB troubles in 2012. And I got to be honest, they haven't really changed their methodology for the next like six years afterwards. They're just desperately trying to find the next Peyton Manning and do what already worked once. But in 2016, the Broncos signed Mark Sanchez and Trevor Semyon in free agency, neither of whom jumped off the page the way Peyton Manning jumps off the page, even with neck surgery. I'd attest I'd rather want Peyton Manning with a broken neck than Mark Sanchez at 33 as my quarterback. But they get Mark Sanchez and Trevor Semyon in free agency and then traded up in the 2016 draft to get Paxton Lynch, who, by the way, is basically the same height and same weight as Brock Osweiler, both like six foot eight quarterbacks. What followed for three years was one of the saddest rotations of fringe starters and backup QBs of my lifetime. Trevor Semyon won the starting job by default over Mark Sanchez and Paxton Lynch playing horribly in free in training camp. All three played at some point during a sad 9-7 Super Bowl defense, missing the playoffs with a still-intact no-fly zone defense. Then in 2017, it was a revolving door of Paxton Lynch, Trevor Semyon, and the four-game return of the one and only Brock Osweiler, who was traded from Houston to Cleveland in a salary dump, which, by the way, Cleveland got the pick that became Nick Chubb out of that salary dump, and then cut and sent to Denver, where he started four games in a 5-11 and 2017 season. Then the Broncos threw a mid-level contract at Case Keenum, fresh off of an NFC Championship appearance and Minnesota Miracle-type season. And Case Keenum actually turned out to be the good one of the bunch, because he at least started all 16 games in a putrid 6-10 and Broncos season that ended in Oakland in what we thought was going to be the last Raider game in Oakland where the Raiders won and basically the team just quit on Vance Joseph. And Vance Joseph would get fired after two seasons of mediocrity and 11-21. and And the Broncos continue to turn around a plethora of QB options in the draft for 2016 and 2017 and 2018. They passed up on Josh Allen in 2018. They passed up on Dwayne Haskins, instead trading down to pick 20 to get Noah Fant. And they finally settled on Drew Locke in 2019. And before y'all say anything about Dwayne Haskins, did Dwayne Haskins and Drew Locke really have that different of careers so far? Have things really gone that differently for Dwayne Haskins and Drew Locke? Because when you think about it, Dwayne Haskins... 
got cut at the end of last year for going to a strip club. They're both backup quarterbacks from the same draft classes. They've both started about 15 games in their careers. They were both failed by their pitiful organizations. Are they really having that different of a career? Then, the real confusion kicks in. Because in 2019, after drafting Drew Locke, the Broncos put him up against Joe Flacco in 2019, who they acquired for a fourth-round pick before the draft. Which was a little confusing because usually when you draft a rookie quarterback, it's because you have someone who's like already there and in waiting, and it's going to be like a passing of the torch, like a Tyrod Taylor to Justin Herbert type of situation. But Flacco had just been replaced by Lamar Jackson months before his trade. None of his contract was guaranteed. He wasn't really considered a long-term option in Denver. And ultimately, Drew Locke got hurt in training camp in 2019, and so Flacco got to be starter by default, even though it was pretty clear he was going to be the starter all the way through. And then Flacco suffered what we thought was going to be a career-ending neck injury in 2019, which put Brandon Allen into the starting spot. Eventually, Drew Locke recovered enough to win four meaningless games at the end of the 2019 season, which denied the Broncos a higher draft pick in 2020. However, in context, Jerry Judy ended up falling to pick 15 anyways, but that pick could have been an all-time L if a generational superstar had been picked like six picks before Denver, because Denver was on pace to go like 5-11, and 11, and then Drew Locke won like four meaningless games in the last five of the season to get them to 7-9 and nine and basically ruin their top draft pick chances. So had they got had there been like a generational talent pick before Jerry Judy, it could have been an all-time L for the Denver Broncos. So through all of these revolving doors, combined with the Chiefs dynasty landing Patrick Mahomes, it meant that the Denver Broncos were stuck in perpetual mediocrity in a division where everyone knows that they're playing for second place. And I've talked about this pretty recently around the AFC West, is that the AFC West is entering that era or that period uh, similar to what happened to the AFC East for 20 years. The Jets, the Bills, and the Dolphins went through two decades of being some of the worst franchises in the NFL. Because the Patriots were dominating that division every single year. Occasionally they'd get a wild card berth. But in the case of Buffalo, as soon as the Patriots dynasty arrived in 2000, the Bills did not make the playoffs. For 16 years, the Bills did not make the playoffs. And the Miami Dolphins, as soon as the Patriots dynasty arrived have not won a playoff game since. They've gone 20 years without winning a playoff game. 1999 was the last time the Dolphins won a playoff game. 1999 was the last time that the Bills made the playoffs when the Patriots arrived. The Jets were in a similar position, so save for a two-year Mark Sanchez-Rex Ryan Jets run when Brady tore his knee and when the Patriots were retooling and Mark Sanchez went into Foxborough and won a playoff game in New England... Save for those two years, the Jets have made 
one other playoff appearance across 20 years. When you know your only chance to make the playoffs is a wild card, it makes for some really long droughts for the teams in said divisions. The Bills, Dolphins, and Jets made like a combined five playoff appearances for six, for 17 years. The Jets were the only team that won a playoff game for 17 years. And now the Jets have the longest playoff drought in the NFL. The Bills, until last year, hadn't won a playoff game in 25 years. And the Dolphins haven't won a playoff game ongoing in 20 years. And the Chargers, the Raiders, and the Broncos are now getting a taste of this sad medicine. The Chiefs have won five straight division titles now, and they're probably going to win five more because that team is so overwhelmingly dominant that no one in that division has a chance to catch Kansas City. You're always playing for the wild card. You're playing for second place in that division, and you have to play the Chiefs every year. So your only path to the playoffs is being good enough to beat up the other two teams in your division or get a miracle win against said Kansas City Chiefs like the Raiders did last year when they went into Kansas City and won. By the way, fun fact, the only players to beat Patrick Mahomes over the past 22 months are Derek Carr and Tom Brady. Only people to beat Patrick Mahomes across the last 22 months. And so the Chargers, Raiders, and Broncos are now going a decade where they're just fighting for second place. And you know you're in a division that you cannot win because there's a dominant superpower and then there's a bunch of mediocrity afterwards. The Broncos have been a symptom of this, not necessarily the cause, but they have been pretty mediocre even by the standards of the Chargers and the Raiders and the Broncos, none of which has made a playoff appearance since the Raiders made the playoffs with Connor Cook in 2016. So post-Patrick Mahomes, none of the teams in that division have made a playoff appearance. Back to the Broncos. The Broncos, going into 2020, had a big question mark with Drew Locke. He had won four out of five games, but... Also, he'd only shown just enough to give the Broncos pause. He didn't look at him and said he's automatically a great quarterback, but practically, it made sense that they would recommit to Drew Locke. Even if I disagreed with the premise of Drew Locke was never intended to be a great starting quarterback in the NFL, similarly to Brock Osweiler, at the very least... They were unsure about about Drew Locke, and they were in year two with Coach Vic Fangio, and even if it looked like it was going to not work out, it was only fair to Vic and Drew to give them a year to try and prove themselves. And shit went real south real quick in 2020 for the Denver Broncos, because all of a sudden Drew Locke got off to a rough start before getting injured being replaced by Jeff Driscoll for two games. Then Jeff Driscoll got hurt, and it set up Brett Ripien to start and win a Thursday night football game in October against the Jets, only for Drew Locke to return and have a COVID-19 outbreak occur within the Broncos' QB room, which led to a basically forfeit, 
uh, I made this joke about games being forfeited this year, and I looked up and said, we did that last year when the Broncos started Kendall Hinton, a wide receiver from Wake Forest at quarterback against the Saints. He completed one pass the entire game, and they wanted to have an assistant coach who was a college quarterback start the game, but the NFL wouldn't let them, which is just unbelievably excellent. It's a perfect symbol of what the COVID 2020 time was. Is how can we race to the dollars as fast as possible? We're not going to forfeit games. We can't postpone games. Sorry, Broncos. You're just going to have to forfeit this game because you guys kind of suck and the Saints are kind of good. So we kind of know how this one's going to go. We're just going to throw everyone out there at this point. So the Broncos limped in with a 5-11 and record and one of those wins was in New England in a game without Cam Newton or Stephon Gilmore. So take it with whatever grain of salt you want. John Elway was replaced as general manager, which almost always precludes a coach from getting fired in the foreseeable future. Which, by the way, Vic Fangio is going to be the first coach fired this year. No question. The Broncos held the number nine pick in a deep 2021 quarterback class, but all of a sudden they seemed recommitted to Drew Locke until three days before the draft when they traded it for Teddy Bridgewater from the Carolina Panthers. And Bridgewater, we back when we first started the podcast and he was on the Saints, we started with this concept called Bridgewatering, which is basically that Teddy Bridgewater was going to be a high-end backup to secure his dough as a low-end starter and then kind of alternate that back and forth. So Teddy, who might be the best backup and worst starter in the NFL, seemed to be a bit of insurance to sit behind Drew Locke just in case they finally gave up on the Locke experiment. And the Broncos ended up passing on both Justin Fields and Mac Jones in the 2021 draft. While Patrick Sertan might be a great corner, it could go down as another all-time laughable draft pick in NFL history, the same way we laugh at the Bears for passing on Mahomes, the same way we laugh at the Giants for taking Daniel Jones. That's what we might end up doing with Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke and the team that passed on Justin Fields and... Uh, Mac Jones, depending on who ends up being good and who doesn't. Pretty sure it's going to be Justin Fields more than Mac Jones, but both could be great quarterbacks. As for Teddy Buckets, a.k.a. Teddy Two Gloves, a.k.a. Teddy Bridgewatering, they just gave up on Drew Locke altogether and gave Teddy the starting job right out the gate, which means the Broncos were never serious about Drew Locke starting in the first place, at which point you should probably look to find a long-term quarterback option other than just Teddy Two Gloves. And the best part about all of this, apart from laughing at the Broncos fans who were swearing by Drew Locke just two days ago, is that this all might work out for the Broncos. The Broncos have a much-improved offense and defensive line, and they have a deep group of skill position players with Cortland Sutton and the emergence of Judy, and K.J. Hamler, and Noah Fant. They've got a deep, young group of position players. And they get back Vaughn Miller, and Teddy Bridgewater should at least be a slight improvement over the revolving door of crap they've had at quarterback across the last five years. 
I don't know how good or bad Denver will be this year, even with all their failures at the most important position in all of sports. I know they won't be Super Bowl good, that much is obvious, like they're definitely not that good. But to say that they're going to go 4-12 and or 7-9 and or even make the playoffs, and if they sneak into the playoffs like the Bears did last year, is that enough to save Vic Fangio's job? Is it enough to just get him an extra year when very clearly this whole system is falling apart and they have a new GM who's probably going to want to hire his own coach? Ultimately, the Broncos have been perpetually mediocre for six years now. And they've had a 2000s Browns level failures at the quarterback position. Like, I know we laughed the Browns having like 24 quarterbacks across 12 years, but the Broncos have done half of that across six. They've done 12 different quarterbacks across six years now. And they play in a division where there's no chance they'll be competing for first place over the next five years. They are, by conventional definitions, a perpetually mediocre franchise right up there with Detroit, Cincinnati, Miami, Jacksonville, the Raiders, and both of the New York teams. Maybe the answer is bottoming out and rebuilding from scratch. Maybe it's letting a new GM and new coach plug in a big money quarterback and fight for a 10-7 and playoff appearance. Maybe it's not learning from your past mistakes and going in with no plan at all as it appears George Patton has done in his first, like, seven months as GM of the Broncos. These are questions time will answer, and most of them involve us writing off the Broncos as an irrelevant franchise for the next five years or so, welcoming them to a full decade of irrelevance. As for the 2021 Broncos, you know what? Best of luck to you. It looks like your season, however, might be over before it even starts. And to all the Drew Locke stands out there, your idiotic hopes of a Josh Allen-type turnaround for a quarterback that never had high upside in the first place can be put to bed before the season even starts, which by itself is just hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious to watch what's happened to the Denver Broncos across the last six seasons and to have beef, not as much as the Bears and the Giants, but still have beef with Denver Broncos fans. It's really funny. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday as well as soon-to-be wired-ups on Sundays. Make sure to follow the Take It Easy podcast. Download and leave those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Downloads are huge. We're approaching the end of the month, and so our algorithms are starting to lay down the foundation for the next month when we may have sponsors come on in here. So make sure to download those episodes. As many as you can are much, much appreciated. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.